Three years ago in South India, I was privileged to witness two very important events. First, on a tour of the huge Meenakshi temple in Madurai, my group passed a small gathering, and our guide stopped and told us in a stage whisper to watch what was happening. A young woman faced a young man just a few feet apart. They were silent and visibly apprehensive. Two other couples, older parents, stood watching, smiling, and two other young people looked on. One of them approached our guide, and they chatted in Tamil, and then he turned and spoke to us. The guide translated. His face, as he spoke, was lit up with joy. The girl at the center of it all was his sister, and she was meeting her husband-to-be for the first time. To meet in the temple was auspicious. Meenakshi Temple is a shrine to a divine marriage. It was right and proper for the families to meet there. Now, we European and North American Christians in the group really didn't think such things happened in the 21st century. But it was natural and part of life for these families, at least. And it was hard not to catch their joy. A week later, I arrived in another city, Chennai, and the man who met me at the train station said we were invited to a wedding. It didn't seem as if I had any choice. The wedding was in a Lutheran church, exactly as a traditional prayer book wedding service would proceed in a church in England or Canada. Of course, it was in Tamil, except for the very traditional hymns that we sang, the, the voice that breathed o'er Eden and O perfect love, and the dearly beloved part was in English. The bride and groom were dressed for a very traditional wedding in England or Canada. Now, I didn't go to the reception. I was too tired from my traveling day on the super-fast express that reached breakneck speeds of up to 35 miles per hour. But I got a taste of wedding receptions in India that night and through the week because I was staying at a church residence that was attached to a wedding hall. This was how the Church of South India in Chennai raised a lot of money, including supporting the residents. And there may have been about 100 people at the wedding I attended. At least 300 were expected at the reception. During the week at that wedding hall, there was the wedding and reception for a Muslim couple, and there were about 1,000 apparently expected at the celebration. Two very different approaches to marriage, one deeply rooted in Hindu-Indian culture, the other as much a reflection of colonization as of Christianity, but with something added to it, made in India. At the same church on Sunday morning, the bride and groom were there in their wedding finery welcoming the congregation. They were announced and applauded during the service. They were the first at the rail for communion and then they went behind the rail to help serve the congregation. Pretty neat. It's pretty hard for us to step into the story we heard from John chapter 2, the story of a first-century Galilean wedding celebration. The events that lead up to it 
are a lot like the ritual that I saw in the Hindu temple. The negotiations, parent to parent. The bargaining that comes before the betrothal. There's probably not a religious ceremony as we would recognize it. Likely a public announcement and a very public procession of the bride from her parents' home to the groom's parents' home. Bride and groom are never alone together, always surrounded by family, and the family is always surrounded by neighbors from near and far. And then the party begins. It's an open party with an open bar that goes on for up to six days. Six days, an Indian wedding reception times six. Because it takes time to celebrate so much, deepening the ties between two families, strengthening the whole community, guaranteeing another generation, maintaining the population, and certainly supporting the local economy. And perhaps most important of all, upholding the honor of both families. So if the wine runs out partway through, if the wine is gone before the party's over, it doesn't just spoil the party, it shames the groom's family in the eyes of the whole community. And Mary knows Jesus can do something about it. Still, it's a strange request to make of the Messiah. Or is it? It's not trivial. It's a matter of concern to everyone there. It's also a setup, whether Mary knows it or not. And I do like to give Mary some credit. It's a setup for a sign. And that's the word John uses for what, for what others just call miracles. And Jesus says, it's not time for a sign. Mary and John, the gospel writer, disagree. Now John says in chapter 1, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, blessing after blessing. When the good wine's all gone, the best comes in abundance. Yes, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of it. This is about abundance. This is about something much better than religion. It's about how something good, holy water, can be transformed into something so much more life-giving. This, Jesus' first sign, points to everything Jesus says and does in John's Gospel. But one thing this story isn't about is marriage. We can't draw a straight line from John chapter 2 to anything definitive about marriage as we know it today. Yet those of us here today who have been married and married in a church were probably told something like, marriage is a holy estate adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee. Which is to say, Jesus went to a wedding, worked a miracle there, so he thinks marriage is just about the best thing in the world, and we should too. Now, we don't count marriage as a sacrament. Some Christians do. We believe marriage is important, and we like that Jesus shows up at a wedding before he goes off on his mission to redeem the whole world. 
And we like the image of Jesus taking what we value in our lives and transforming it into something more valuable than we'd ever dare claim for ourselves. And that's true anywhere, not just at weddings. Anytime, not only when we're celebrating. It's true for any relationship, not just for marriage as we know it. And marriage as we know it, as a relationship of two people who come together by their own free choice and by the mysterious forces of affection and attraction, is beautiful. But it's a comparatively recent development in some cultures in some parts of the world. We think marriage as we know it is Christian marriage. That's what we've been taught. And after all, most Christians who marry in our part of the world get married in church or at least by clergy. And even that is a recent development. In North America, Protestant churches got into the marrying business because in settler communities, ministers were often the only halfway educated people around. They could read the documents and sign them, and they served both their churches and the government. I have a license to marry because it works. It suits the province of Ontario who issued the license. It suits Glenview because as a pastor I may be called on to officiate at weddings in the church. It works, but not because the Bible says that's the way it's supposed to. Christians around the world marry in many ways for many reasons, with beliefs and expectations that reflect who they are and where they are. The church around the world throughout its history has responded, adapted to traditions, customs, practices, about marriage and family and many other things. Jesus shares in many banquets, enjoys celebrations, religious and social. His presence adorns and beautifies all of life. And I know it may seem to us that the world has run too far ahead of us, at least the world we know best. For some of us, it is hard not to see change as loss, especially when some of the things we were taught were right, were just right, and in no need of question or change. And yet they seem to be slipping away from us. And many Christians are tempted to retreat, to try to step out of a forward movement they know they can't slow or stop. But in this story from John chapter 2, and John's words about the word of God that became flesh and lived among us, in all of John's gospel, in every story of Jesus, speaking for myself, I see that he chooses to be where people are where they're going, where their world is taking them. Jesus brings God's presence and blessing, even the occasional miracle, into life as it is. Not life as it was, and certainly not life as religious people say it should be and can only be. So I can't imagine Jesus turning down an invitation, saying the people who invite him don't deserve to celebrate. There's been a lot of press lately about those bakers in Colorado 
who refused to make a cake for the perfectly legal wedding of a same-sex couple. They fought for their right to say no with a passion, a conviction, and a certainty that's worthy of some respect. They went all the way to the United States Supreme Court to assert their right to discriminate, to say no. It was an expensive battle, and they lost. But while they were busy trying to make their, cake, their case, and they weren't making a cake, but they were making a case, and rallying support and raising funds, where, where was Jesus? I like to imagine that he was back in their kitchen, whipping up the biggest, richest cake that any wedding has ever seen. Amen.